Welcome to Raising Our Voices for Health Equity, a podcast series presented by Vaz Advisors. Vaz is committed to defining, elevating, and shining a light on health equity, which this series intends to do. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. As we continue our conversations around health equity, I am pleased to welcome to the show, Dr. Gary Puckren. Dr. Puckren is the founding president and chief executive officer of the National Minority Quality Forum, a nonprofit healthcare, research, education, and advocacy organization headquartered in Washington, DC. The mission of NMQF is to reduce patient risk by assuring optimal care for all. NMQF conducts evidence-based, data-driven initiatives to eliminate premature death and preventable illness. The forum is committed to using science and analytics to work towards controlling health outcomes and closing the health gap in our communities. Dr. Gary Puckman, welcome to the show. Hi, Kim. Glad to be here. Um, Gary, let's start by giving our um, listeners a little bit of background today, a little background on you and the National Minority Quality Forum. When and why did you found uh, NMQF? What were the gaps that you saw that you were hoping to address? My doctorate is actually in history. I always warn people about that. I feel like I need to confess my sins before I start <laughs> talking healthcare. I spent a tour publishing a magazine for Smithsonian. And one of the things I learned while publishing is that there are roughly 38,000 zip codes in the country where people live. 70% of African-Americans live in 2,500 zip codes. 70% of Hispanics are in roughly 2,500 zip codes. And 50% of Asians are in 1,500 zip codes. So roughly 8,000 zip codes around the country is where the minority population resides. So when we talk about healthcare disparities and underserved and all of that, it's really happening in 8,000 zip codes around the country. Back in the 1990s, we were not collecting health data at the zip code level. Um, CDC was reporting it out at the county level, but the county level data was not operational. You couldn't do it. It wasn't actionable. You couldn't do anything with it. Uh, this was at a time when CDC was announcing Healthy People 2010, and I was new to Washington, and I thought, well, the government says we're going to eliminate health disparities in, in 10 years. And I thought, well, yeah, let, let me kind of contribute to that as well. And I thought the way I could contribute uh, is by collecting health data down at those zip code levels. And so that's what launched me into the world of collecting um, health data. Uh, the idea was that it was going to be a contribution to the effort to eliminate health disparities. So, um, Gary, let's dig a little deeper on the zip code data that you have amassed at NMQF over the years. What kind of data um, are you gathering? What is the volume of data that you've collected? And what are you doing with the data? Yeah. Well, again, you know, the historian means that in this particular instance, I need to be a good archivist. Uh, and a good archivist collects data not because of their personal interest, but they want to have data so that when somebody asks a question, that maybe you have some data that can help them uh, in their study. Um, so we have been collecting all kinds of environmental data, claims data, clinical data, environmental data. We've worked with EPA uh, to show the impact of environment and health. Uh, we've used the claims data to work with CMS uh, and CDC to make sure that proper care is given. Uh, we provide data to the Tri-Caucus. This is the African-American, Hispanic, uh, and Asian caucus so that uh, they understand what's happening to their constituents. Healthcare is very data-driven, uh, and you can't fix a problem unless you're able to measure it. So we've tried to lay hands on any kind of data, voting registration data, 
we have it, you name it, we're collecting it uh, because healthcare impinges upon all of those fields of inquiry. And so we have tried to have that data for researchers and for the work that we do. So uh, let me back up for a minute. There's been a lot of conversation, Gary, in healthcare about big data. I want to throw out a little bit of a definition. You can add to that or correct me. But by big data, um, I, we're really talking about collecting, analyzing, leveraging healthcare data that you know might be too too large to understand by traditional means. Sometimes we're talking about machine learning. So big data can better inform health prevention intervention, management, and care. Okay, so I'm going to put that out as a working definition for us. But when I finish, let me know if you agree with that. But tell me, how can big data support more equitable distribution of healthcare in the U.S.? And how can data reduce risk in healthcare? Talk more about what you're doing with it and, and if you sort of agree with that definition. I, I do agree with the definition. You know, at, at the end of the day, when you start to live in the data, what you realize is that healthcare is highly predictive that you should be able to predict the future from your data. And so, you know, we're collecting data about the past, what happened in the past, but really what we're trying to do is understand the future. And you can't understand the future. I got into this conversation with my daughter on, on we were driving down to the beach one summer with some of her friends. Yeah. Uh, and I said to her, well, you can only learn from the past. You can't learn from the future. And there was, there was a complete uproar about that. <laughs> but the answer is you can only learn from the past. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how we use the data. Uh, we use the data because we want to understand the future. Uh, and when we look at the data, what we understand is that we have not provisioned healthcare equally across our population. Uh, we have a tiered healthcare system by design. It has very deep historic roots. And in order to change that, we have to reimagine a new system that is not tiered, uh, that is providing equitable care to everyone. And the way to do that is really by the data. You know, what I find intriguing is it gets lost on everybody, all of us, Obama, me, you, we're all subject to the same physical laws. And those laws impact our life. And we can know them and we can use them and that's what we should be doing. And, but that's not our healthcare system right now. Our healthcare system was designed when segregated hospitals, segregated physician practices were the norm, uh, where it was by law and by practice appropriate to discriminate against people. Think about that, denying care to people based on some phenotype or gender or whatever you came up with. That's the legacy system. That's the system that we're dealing with. And that's what we're pushing back against. And the way to reimagine is to use the data to tell you how to do that. So talk, talk a little bit more about that, Gary. Do you believe that in its current structure that the U.S. healthcare system is inherently broken? I mean, what you're saying is that people of color were, were left behind when this system was being built? Not only left behind, they weren't even part of it. Or not part of it. <laughs> they were not part of it, right? Come on. They were not. And... It is doing exactly what it was uh, built to do. And it, it can't be fixed. You know, I distinguish between the quality movement and the equity movement. The quality movement believes that, oh, if we do a little dab of do you here and a little dab of do you there, uh, we'll end up with, uh, with an equitable healthcare system. And the answer is, no, you won't. No, you won't. It's a waste of time um, because the system is at its core, um, you know, Health systems or social systems, they have principles. They have, at, at their core, they, they have a set of values, axiomatic statements, if you will, 
And this one believes that we can't take care of everyone. Uh, we have to ration care. And so we set up formularies. We set up a Medicaid program that is underfunded and can't take care of the, the 90 million people that are in it. Uh, we routinely deny people access to therapies because they don't have the money to pay for it or they lack an insurance card or whatever thing we came up with to deny people access. That's the system. That's how it works, right? And we're saying that that's not it. That's not, that's not healthcare. The purpose of healthcare is to lower patient risk. Everybody who comes through the front door, what we want to try to do is keep you out of the hospital, keep you out of the emergency room, keep you from dying, keep you from disability, and it doesn't matter who you are. We have to do that. That's healthcare. All this other stuff is not healthcare. I don't, I don't even know what it is, but it ain't healthcare. When you talk about lowering or leveling the, um, the, the risk, Gary, are you talking about health risk? Are you talking about financial risk? Are you I guess it depends on who the player is, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the current healthcare system focuses on financial risk. That's all it does. Right. I mean, think about it. CBO score. Think about that. In order to pass a legislation to help somebody, you got to send it to CBO and CBO will say, yeah, you know, you probably saved your life, but it'll cost us a lot of money. And so, ah, let's not do that. That's the system. Not worth it. Not worth it. It's not worth it. Right. Think about that. That's the American people's lives that you're talking about, who you forced to take Medicare as a tax. And now you're going to tell them, I can't deliver the care to you because you ain't worth it. I mean, fundamentally, is what they're saying, right? And I say that's not healthcare. That's not that's not what you promised. You promised. You took it on. Um, you said that you wanted to provide healthcare to everyone, and there you are. And so you need to kind of get on with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Gary, do you can you give examples of how you, as an organization, you as a leader, have used some of this data potentially to impact policy change? Are you up on the hill sharing this data? Are you talking to CMS? Are you talking to private payers? Give us some examples of how you're leveraging this data to the benefit of folks. Uh, we recently did an article uh, that appeared in Lancet last summer, I believe it came out. It was looking at the administration of vaccines in minority populations. And in the senior population, uh, we needed to provide them the high-dose vaccine because um, their immune systems were lower, and so they needed a higher dose of the vaccine in order to, um, to protect them. And what the data showed is that minority populations were not getting the high dose, right? What it was also saying is there was no vaccine hesitancy here. These were folks who said, yes, vaccinate me, but the system decided not to give them the dose that was appropriate for, for them. Based on their age, based on their age. Based on their age, yes. Age-appropriate dosing, right? And so we published the article, and the editors of Lancet added a commentary, and they said, you know, the only factor is race, right? The only thing that explains why they're not getting this dose is because of race. That article and that commentary changed CDC's guidance, so that CDC now says that everybody has got to get the high dose. And that's sort of how you use data to force the system. Now, that's a, it's an important change, right? But there's a deeper set of changes that have to occur in order to get us to the healthcare system that we actually need to have. Gary, I want to pivot for a minute to the FDA and clinical trials. As you well know, this spring, the FDA Food and Drug Administration released a draft guidance on enhancing diversity in clinical trials. Why is diversity important in clinical trials? Let's start there on the, sort of the clinical question. 
And what do you see as sort of the benefits and risk of the guidance? And I know you've been really involved in a lot of conversation on this. So here lies the challenge when we come to reimagining. So the old system is predicated on race, right? Mm -hmm. Because it distributed things by race. It it separated who got and who should not get, right? Mm -hmm. But clinically, our biology is really about genotype, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about race. You could phenotypically, uh, you could look different, but genomically, as it presents to the pathophysiology of a disease or the metabolism of a medication, people who are phenotypically different could have the same genomic type. And so the challenge that we have and where we need to go is outside of that social identity framework that the old system has imposed upon us and follow the science. And the science is saying, we need to be genotyping. In fact, if we were really doing our work, we would genotype everybody at birth so that we understand and physicians would understand, right? Uh, how they would metabolize the medicine if offered, what the potential pathophysiology of a disease would be like. That's where we're going. So when I looked at the FDA guidance, I said, oh yeah, it's old school, I get you. It's important because you feel as if we've left you out and so we we need to make recompense and let's use your social identity to do that. But that ain't healthcare. That's not not clinical care. That's not what uh, the sequencing of the genome is teaching us, right? And then on top of it, uh, we don't want to pay for genomic typing, right? We we that's too expensive. That's you know, let's not do that. That's that's too expensive. So you get my point, right? Yeah, we're asking the wrong questions. Maybe we're asking the wrong questions, right? <laughs> and we're fixing the wrong problem, right? Right. That's the problem, right? We are. We have to reimagine. Right. We have to think about the world a little bit differently and step outside of that framework that you know has been around us for 300 years yeah that is limiting our ability to see the future Gary I might be worried about you if you start talking about healthcare reform on Capitol Hill eh? <laughs> <laughs> I expect to be hit by a bus at any moment here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm worried about your safety perhaps I know ex- exactly oh yeah yeah but I mean this is exactly what needs to happen right you as you said we're we are still boxed in and we're navigating in an old system and we're asking the wrong questions yeah we're completely asking the wrong questions um but but let, let's talk about about this guidance for a minute because it's what we're living with at the moment. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know if you share. I, I have some concerns about you know as this rolls out. I think there are going to be headhunters out there trying to find yeah. people to meet these numbers and criteria in trials. And I think it could have the potential to have a you know maybe a negative effect on the on the on the community on nonprofits yeah. like yours. And and you know I've been a nonprofit for many years and right. on other community organizations um, who might be chasing the dollars or yeah. you know might be tempted perhaps for the wrong reason. too controversial. I don't know. What do you think? No, I I think you're right. The challenge is the policy is right that we need to make sure that our trials are diverse. Um, The question is, are we defining diversity correctly? Right. Right. And equally important, uh, we need to make sure that those underserved populations that have been outside of the research framework are now brought in because even though clinically of social race doesn't mean anything, when it comes to food and diet and access, that social identity is important. 
Yeah. Right. And so you have to include it as well in the conversation, but you have to collect that data and understand it in its appropriate place. And I think that's truly the challenge. The example I would give is a, a drug like warfarin, right? Um, where um, vitamin K can, um, warfarin has a very narrow therapeutic window that the patient has to be kept in. Um, it's a blood thinner, blood thinner that keeps you from stroking out, right? That's right, right. And so, but vitamin K in the collard greens that you and eat. And spinach and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And spinach, right? right. Could disrupt the, the use of, of warfarin. And so you have to know that. Right. And you have to explain that to the patient because that's part of their culture and social identity and all. That's what I'm talking about. Right. Uh, where this blend of social identity and clinical identity right. marry. Uh, because with warfarin, there's also some sense that in some of the alleles, some of the genotypes, there are differences. And so you have to be aware of those genotypes for dosing and also on the cultural side of what happens when uh, when the medication is actually being used. Very complicated, but complicated. that's healthcare. That's right. healthcare. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, Gary, I, I, I'm sure you and I are both talking to a lot of pharmas, yeah. biotechs that are striving to... Uh, you know, FDA puts out guidance, you know, where folks are going to try to find ways to uh, yeah. to follow that guidance. What advice do you have for pharmas as they look to strive to increase diversity in trials and, you know, this catchphrase inclusive research? Yeah. And do you think that, that that inclusive research is one way to address some of the gaps in health? Ideally, what we need is to have clinical trials as a component of coordinated care, right? So that it's an option for the clinician across populations, rural, urban, minority, not minority, gender identity, whatever it is, so that there's always that option there. Uh, unfortunately, the way we do clinical trials right now is, you know, these companies, they're very competitive and I, and I get it. They try to set up these trials. Every time they have a new therapy, they run around and set up a, a new trial and the trial is over. Uh, they lose sight of the, the investigator. It's all done. And we don't end up with the infrastructure that we need to do research. We ought to be constantly learning, right? We have to learn all the time and we have to accelerate learning. Uh, we're learning too slowly because we haven't built a system to help us learn. Uh, and so what I would argue for, and I think it would actually bring down the cost of medications because these trials are not inexpensive, they're a large part of what happens, is that to build a national infrastructure uh, that has the capacity to uh, bring into studies representative samples of the population that's most likely to use the therapy um, should be a system that's completely incorporated and nationalized. And uh, we, we pay a dear price uh, both in terms of cost and lives when we don't do that. Gary, does part of that include um, making a further uh, investment in community sites capacity to do trials? Oh, absolutely. If I want to, I want to, I'll be more likely to participate in a trial if it's in my backyard with somebody I know. Exactly. Than going off to a big academic yeah, center. Exactly. So think about an FQAC. Their board is 50% made up of the community. Um, we underfund them now so that they're absolutely underdressed. Uh, just providing care of the mainstream uh, right. and so they can't do clinical research they can't contribute and so the populations that they serve are necessarily outside of the framework of of clinical research and and so that has to be fixed right right me personally i would put 
um, clinical trials in nursing homes. Right. I look at those bodies and say, those are bodies that we should be reclaiming. What the hell, right? Why do we just sit them there when we when we can be part of the learning experience? Yeah. I look at them as the vanguard, right? That's the population right. that we should be really studying. Anyway. Right. And I just want to mention for our listeners, FQHC stands for Federally Qualified Health Centers. These are, I don't know, 1,700, 1,800 community clinics Around the country. all over the country, yeah. many of which are serving underserved populations, yeah. both in urban and, and, and mostly rural um, areas. Exactly. So. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I have the alphabet soup problem. I know. It's the DC disease. Oh, DC. DC, the acronym <laughs> disease. I know. I know. Gary, I have a last question. I could talk all day with you about this. I have one more question for you. Yeah. Just curious about your thoughts um, in terms of the role that patient advocacy organizations can address in playing health equity art? Is it through education? Is it through policy change, helping with access, affordability? What role do you see these really um, you know, vibrant and passionate organizations playing in the game? I think they're the catalytic agent for change, right? I think um, the, uh, and I love the pharma companies, and I love health plans and uh, hospitals, but they're all locked in to the old system. Uh, they just quarrel among themselves and, and, and you know, but it's all about the patient and it's the patient voice uh, and the patient has to make demands. Uh, and I think uh, patient advocacy is the catalytic force in the system. Uh, they're the ones to drive change. And so I think they play an incredibly important role. And I think their voices just not need to be heard louder and they need to be very insistent uh, that we provide quality care. Uh, to every patient coming in the door. Well, and by virtue of being, you know, 501c3 nonprofit, they have no profit motive. Their their mission. Their mission, that's the point. Is to represent and serve patients, right? That is exactly the point. That's their job. That's their job. In the system. That's a, that's a great job. Right. Nobody else is hanging over their shoulder, right? Yeah. It's a great job. That's a great job to have. Yeah, it is a great job to have. Um, Gary, uh, Dr. Gary Parker, and thank you for joining us uh, for the show today. Your uh, experience and insights, as always, are incredibly valuable. We hope you'll um, we hope you'll come back and join us again soon. Well, thank you so much for the invite. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today. This is Raising Our Voices for Health Equity. I'm your host, Kim Tebaldo. Please join us next time as we continue the conversation on how to build a more just and equitable healthcare system.